Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 59 for the first quarter of January 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the face on Mars, part one. That's right, the face on Mars. Not pyramids, not glass tubes, nor worms, nor cities, nor Bigfoot, nor trees, nor fossils. Not Mayan petroglyphs. The face, with maybe a little bit of other faces thrown in. The other things I just mentioned, well, those will be for future shows. When I initially decided to do this topic, I thought that it would be relatively straightforward. The very, very basic claim that there is a roughly mile-long face staring up at us from Mars is fairly basic. But after reading dozens of websites and listening to literally over 28 hours of interviews of people talking about this, and most of those were Richard Hoagland, the mythos that's been built around it makes this a truly monumental task. (laughs) By the way, that's a change for this year. I've decided to add a laugh track so that you know where I've attempted to make jokes so that you can laugh along too at home. Okay, not really. Anyway, to address this large task, I'm going to take you through something of a historical timeline of various claims, from the very first image to some of the later images, and that's going to take us through this Part 1 episode. Part 2, which, much like Lord of the Rings 2 and 3, or Superman 2, were filmed at the same time as Part 1, but released later, Part 2 of the Face on Mars podcast episode was worked on in tandem with this, and it's going to discuss other claims related to the face, a few other faces, and some more fringe conspiracy theories. Now first, I have to talk a little bit about terminology, just so that everyone is on the same page about where and what we're talking about on Mars. By the way, this is on Mars. It's the face on Mars. The famous face on Mars is located in a region called Sidonia. Sidonia is a large area that was named in 1958 after an albedo feature, a feature distinguished for its small color and brightness difference from the surrounding region. This is pretty much how all features prior to spacecraft observations were named. The actual face, and I'm going to use that term as opposed to the wordy alleged face or pareidoliarized face or whatever, is called Sidonia Mensa, where Mensa is a flat-topped prominence with cliff-like edges, a mesa, but in Latin so that we sound smart. I'll have links in the show notes to where this is on Mars, but to give those of you listening and not at your computer a very rough idea of the geography, Mars is an interesting planet. The first order feature of it, geologically, is that there's a crustal dichotomy. The southern half is about seven kilometers or four miles higher in elevation than the northern half, and the southern half is much more heavily cratered, indicating that it's older. The northern half is more low-lying, much smoother, and the material on the surface itself is younger. When I say younger, we're still talking about it being about 3 billion years old, but that's younger than the southern half, which has a surface age closer to about 3.5 to 4 billion years old. Unless you're a creationist and think that Noah's flood did it, and there are some who do believe that, but that is a different episode. The transition between the two hemispheres is called the dichotomy boundary, which in itself is a very complicated region. 
The transition spans over 100 to 500 kilometers or so from north to south, or south to north, but it's still a fairly sharp transition, all things considered. We think that one of the basic effects is that there was a lot of water activity on the boundary, basically draining from the southern highlands to the northern plains. And, if you've ever looked at areas on Earth where massive amounts of water have poured, you know that you get some interesting geology and landforms. The dichotomy boundary is highly chaotic in a lot of places. In fact, many regions are called chaos terrains. It's also incredibly fractured, and it's an intense area of study still today. You get a lot of weird-looking features. Lots of mesas, lots of buttes, and it's literally on this dichotomy boundary that Sidonia and Sidonia Mensa sit. If you were to look at the geology surrounding Sidonia Mensa, you would see cliffs, riverbeds, giant cracks, hundreds of other mesas, lots of craters, and various other very complicated geology. In fact, the particular region on the boundary on which Sidonia Mensa sits is the eastern part of a giant impact basin into which some of the largest valley networks on the planet flow, including Valles Marineris, the Grand Canyon of Mars. Anyway, the point of this background is to give you an idea of the context of this location and the kinds of features that are there. It's water-carved, wind-swept, very chaotic, and very weird-looking. It's complicated, and we still don't understand it all that well, and there are a myriad of odd-looking things that are there. With that in mind as the scenery, let's get on with the story. On July 25, 1976, the United States Viking 1 orbiter took photo 035A72, which showed part of the Sidonia region. Several days later, the image was released to the public. Trying to drum up popular interest in the space program, the caption of the original press release, release P17384, dated July 31, 1976, stated, quote, This picture is one of many taken in the northern latitudes of Mars by the Viking 1 orbiter in search of a landing site for Viking 2. The picture shows eroded mesa-like landforms. The huge rock formation in the center, which resembles a human head, is formed by shadows giving the illusion of eyes, nose, and mouth. The feature is 1.5 kilometers or 1 mile across, with the sun angle at approximately 20 degrees. The speckled appearance of the image is due to bit errors, emphasized by enlargement of the photo. The picture was taken on July 25th from a range of 1,873 kilometers or 1,162 miles. Viking 2 will arrive in Mars orbit next Saturday, August 7th, with a scheduled landing of early September. End quote. That's right, it was NASA who originally said that it looked like a face. This can't be emphasized enough in this discussion, so I'll say it again. The NASA press release was the original public mention of the Mesa, or Mensa, looking like a face. That is, of course, despite this claim. They try to avoid doing it at all costs. The Viking 1 chief scientist, Gary Soffin, dismissed it as, quote, a trick of light and shadow, end quote. In other words, pareidolia, which I'll talk about momentarily. Viking 1 went on to take 18 images of the region. It was a mapping mission after all, and this was not unusual. In fact, a lot of us still use Viking orbiter images today to do scientific research. 
Seven of these 18 images have resolutions better than 250 meters per pixel, or about 820 feet per pixel. The original face image, 035A72, resolved the mesa as only about 50 to 55 pixels tall. Other Viking 1 images show it at varying resolutions from different sun angles. Photo 070A13 is probably the second most shown Viking 1 image of the mesa. Roughly a year after the press release, electrical engineer Vincent Di Pietro came across photo 070A13, and he thought that it looked like a face. He teamed up with computer scientist Gregory Molinar, who used image enhancement to look at details of the face, and the two published a 77-page book in 1982 entitled Unusual Martian Surface Features. Through their enhancement, they claimed that the images show an eyeball in the face's right eye socket, a pupil near the center of the eyeball, and a teardrop below the eye. They wrote, quote, If this object was a natural formation, the amount of detail makes nature herself a very intelligent being. End quote. It's in honor of Di Pietro and Molinar that Richard C. Hoagland, who we'll get to in a bit, named the feature a few miles south of the face the D and M Pyramid. But that's also a future episode. At this point, we're going to pause in the discussion of the face and talk about two things. One is human psychology, and the other is image processing. Mike Barra wrote in late summer 2012, quote, The actual truth is that there is no such thing as pareidolia. It's just a phony, academic-sounding word that the debunkers made up to fool people into thinking there is scholarly weight behind the concept. It's actually a complete sham. The word was actually first coined by a douchebag debunker named Stephen Goldstein in a 1994 issue of Skeptical Inquirer. Since then, every major debunker from Olberg to Dr. Phil has fallen back on it. But it's still a load of BS. There is no such thing. End quote. But that is not the case. The term goes back at least to the mid-1800s. An 1867 journal described it as, quote, the false perception whose objective stimulus blends with the deficient subjective stimulus and forms a single complete impression. This is called a changing hallucination, partial hallucination, perception of secondary images, or pareidolia, end quote. And that's a pretty good description of the term, nearly 150 years later. It doesn't matter what you call it, it doesn't matter if it has an official name or not, the phenomenon is still there. Humans see patterns in randomness. In 2004, I photographed a cloud that looks like a dog. Does that mean that I actually think there's a giant, white, fluffy dog up in the sky? No. It was my brain trying to recognize something familiar in randomness. Human faces in particular are common visual hallucinations from randomness. All you need is two dots and a line below them, and you have a face to the human optical cerebral system. Emoticons are built around that. The original Viking 1 image, 035A72, shows a high-contrast, low-sun image of an oblong mesa. Half the mesa is in shadow along the long axis. Towards one end of the long axis, another part is in shadow, forming a circular area. Towards the other long end, a small line is in shadow. An area near the center is a little bit taller, and it's more sunlit, protruding partly into the shadowed region of the other half. 
A black dot of data dropout is just below that, and it completes the illusion of a nostril. Put it all together, and you have, to the human eye, this low-resolution image looking like a face. However, advocates dismiss this as an explanation. This face looks a little bit like the biblical pictures I've seen of Jesus. It looks almost like the Shroud of Turin a little bit, doesn't it? A lot of people have compared it to that. Which is pretty strange all by itself. Well, it just shows the, the power of, of these type of images, which uh, a lot of people bring their own personal you know, um, feelings and uh, uh, past experiences into these. Uh, we try to look at these uh, point by point and, and just follow the data, and we notice that there's just all this symbolism in these images. Okay, you know how sometimes you can look at some clouds and you can make out what you think is, oh, there's a puppy, or here's something that looks like a bird, uh, or you look at the bark of a tree and you can say, look, that looks almost like a face. Is that what we're looking at here, But or is it something really more uh, thought out? Can I, can I comment on Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Jump sure. in anytime, you two. Um, what we have found here is um, a consistent symbolism. It's it's redundant. It's repeated over and over again. Not just in the in the fact that we can uh, we have about uh, well over two dozen images here that we compare to Mesoamerican um, art and sculpture. So that uh, that right there says that statistically it's it's impossible for one to just be uh, seeing. Uh, abstract things and, and making making something out of them because we we found these images on Mars um, fairly quickly over the first year of our of our research. The Mayan and or the Mesoamerican connections to them we found over time after that. We didn't go looking for you know let's match this and let's match that. It just um, it was there. That's right, now I can find 50 different clouds on a good day that all look like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. It doesn't mean that's statistically impossible, and so the Marshmallow Man is going to soon rain down on us with ooey goodness. The second digression is image processing. I'm going to refer you back to episodes 47 and 48 for much more detail on this. But from that pair of episodes, there are two important points to go back to, at least at this point in the discussion. First, is that you cannot get more detail out of an image than was recorded initially. You cannot increase the size of an image and claim that each new pixel gives you more information. This is like having a satellite image of a city. One pixel covers a parking lot. You cannot increase the size of the image and magically now see individual cars. Being able to do so would be, well, magic. That's not to say that graphics programs won't let you do this. They will, but they guess at the missing information. They cannot give you real features, only guesses based on the surrounding information. But people do not seem to realize this. We do get the pictures back that they will see in the eye sockets. They will see that there's an eyeball in the eye socket. They'll see that there are an eyeball. teeth in teeth. the mouth, which, which they've been able to bring up with their special imaging process. So we expect to be able to see that kind of detail. That was Ken Johnston talking about what he expected from the new Orbiter images coming in 1997. He was recorded in November of 1996 saying that. The shadow that he's talking about that looks like an eye socket in the original 035A72 Viking 1 image is 6 pixels tall. 
claiming that you can do an enhancement and then bring out not only an eyeball within that six pixel tall feature, but a pupil within that, and then say that information is in the original is wrong. Same case for people who say that there are teeth in the mouth. The mouth in the original is only three pixels tall. What people see as teeth are one pixel features that are slightly lighter or darker than the surroundings. That's not to say that these features may not be found in a later higher resolution image, but they cannot be seen in the lower resolution ones. The second rehash of the image processing stuff is that any processing you do on the image changes what was there initially. If you put it through some sort of filter, or if you increase the contrast, or if you do various other things, you will lose original information and you will alter the information that was still there. Why do I repeat these two points now? Well, it's because of what DiPietro and Molinar did back in the 1970s and the 1980s. It was through various manipulations of the data that they claimed to make out features that are at the pixel or sub-pixel level. Having a feature that's one pixel across is not resolving it. Just like when we photograph a star and we see it as one pixel across, it's not resolving it into a disk. It's too small to actually show any detail. You can get some information out of it, but you don't know how noisy it is or if it's above or below the noise or whatever. You have to resolve it to actually get any real good information out of it, especially about planetary landforms. Claiming to go through various processing and to see things like a pupil inside of an eyeball, inside of an eye socket that's six pixels tall of the original Viking images is a really, really big stretch. Even if that slightly darker or lighter pixel is in another image, like 070A13, if it is, you can say at that point that it's interesting, but follow-up is needed with a higher resolution image of the same site in order to determine if it's a real feature or if it isn't. It might have been DiPietro and Molinar who took up the cause from the original NASA mention of the space, but it's really Richard C. Hoagland who seems to have made it his raison d'etre, or his reason for existence, if you'll pardon my very horrible French. Or, if it's not his raison d'etre, again, sorry, anyone who speaks French, it's at least what launched him into his career in anomaly hunting, and it is still one of his centerpieces. And it's probably what he's best known for. Whenever I say Richard Hoagland and people don't really know who he is, I say the face on Mars guy, and most people go, oh, that guy. What makes it even more impressive, though, is that I've gotten through 19 minutes of this episode with only mentioning him once, maybe twice. It was Hoagland and people like him who have clamored for every single spacecraft with a camera in orbit to photograph the face again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Each time they keep claiming that the new photos are going to prove that they were right and clearly show a face. And each time, when it shows the mesa and it looks less and less like a face, they cry foul. I'll get into more detail on this with other face images from other spacecraft in a moment, but we see this all the time among people who anomaly hunt in space images. For those who followed the lunar ziggurat saga between Mike Barra and myself last summer, this was one of the major issues. 
Mike claimed to see a ziggurat in an old Apollo photograph of the moon, but he refused to believe any of the numerous later photographs from other spacecraft, even from other countries, that did not show his ziggurat. And he also claimed that the next country to send a craft there would photograph it and reveal his ziggurat, unless, of course, they were in on the conspiracy, in which case they wouldn't. The same thing has happened with the face on Mars with practically every new image. I'm going to take you through some of them now. The first modern image to be taken of the face was in 1998 by the Mars Global Surveyor's Mars Orbiter Camera, or MOC. MGS, Mars Global Surveyor, arrived in late 1997, and it was aerobraking over the next year to reach its final mapping orbit. All images taken in that first 17-month period were not optimal, and they also occurred during a large Martian dust storm that almost completely shrouded the surface in many places for several months. One of them was Cydonia. Rather than compliment the imaging team on trying to take a photo of the site under very difficult conditions as Richard had demanded that they photograph the site, Hoagland and others rained derision and conspiracy down on Michael Malin, the camera principal investigator, as well as NASA. In order to try to bring out features through the dust storm, the image was subjected to a lot of processing and several software filters. It was also taken while the spacecraft wasn't looking straight down, so it appeared distorted to some extent. The initial processing was released, and it was later revised, which is done pretty much all the time in planetary imaging, especially early in the mission when they're still trying to figure out exactly how the camera is working and model the distortions within it. In 2001, Mach took another photo of the site. Going on year three of its mapping orbit, the images were now being released in typical six- or twelve-month intervals to the scientific community. That's to let people who spent over a decade planning and building the craft and instrumentation first dibs on the data, which is typical for all NASA missions. In fact, it's somewhat unique to NASA, because the European, Japanese, Indian, and Chinese space agencies don't have those kinds of requirements. In 2001, the mock image showed what I would consider very convincingly something unconvincing that doesn't show any face-like features and doesn't show an eyeball, pupil, nor teeth, unlike what's claimed as confirmed in the mock images. And again, these will be linked up in the show notes. However, you would not know this after listening to Richard Hoagland. I think it's informative to see what he said about this and to see how he makes it sound like a vast conspiracy, in contrast with what I just related. This is taken directly from his website. In 1998, when the first new MGS image of the face was released, the first official NASA JPL version came to be known derisively as the Catbox, because of its extremely low oblique viewing angle, total lack of contrast, limited grayscale, and extensive filtering used to remove essentially all data. Later JPL enhancements, released after the evening news cycles had completed, showed the face in a much more favorable and face-like condition. On May 24, 2001, NASA finally released an overhead, high-resolution, close-up image of the face. In hit-piece articles, quite apparently prepared weeks in advance during the withholding of the data for almost two months, NASA claimed that it was highly similar to, quote, other mesas and buttes on Mars, end quote but have yet to produce a single compelling example for comparison. 
NASA also used a deliberately upside-down and horizontally stretched version of this new picture to, quote, underscore, end quote, their point. Fast forward by two years, and another set of claims was presented by Richard Hoagland in October 2003. Some new images were taken just before dawn, when the sun was about half a degree below the horizon, as seen from the Sedonia region. Because the sun was just below the flat horizon, it would shine on anything that was above it, such as the mesa that people think is a face. This was done with the Themis camera on Mars Odyssey, where Themis stands for Thermal Emission Imaging System. Besides getting on Coast to Coast to talk about this, Richard published a very long-winded webpage talking about this set of images, which he completely misinterprets. As with several others, I'll provide a link in the show notes. For those who are listening to my docile tones while driving, exercising, having intimate relations, or something else without intimate computer access or immediate computer access, the five-band, three-color image that I'll link to shows the Cydonia region and the face mesa. Most of the mesa is relatively dark, as one would expect with the sun below the horizon. But the side that's facing the sun is bright white. The fact that it looks much brighter than the rest of the mesa and the surrounding surface, Hoagland claims to mean something significant. They're looking at something that is 99 plus reflectivity. He doesn't really show his math for this claim on the website, although he makes it repeatedly. He basically assumes a linear stretch and compares the brightness on the sunlit side with the surrounding surface. As you might expect at this point, there are several problems with this. At least three, in fact, that I identified right away. First, the majority of the image is only lit by sunlight scattered through the thin Martian atmosphere. Only a few small regions are directly lit by the sun because the sun is just below the horizon, so the only objects that can be lit will be perched above the horizon. This means that, of course, they're going to look much brighter than what isn't lit by the sun. It's like sun coming through a window onto a carpet or a floor. It's really, really bright in direct sunlight, but the area of the floor right next to it is darker. That doesn't mean that the floor is actually darker than the part that's lit by direct sunlight. And the difference on Mars is that the effect is exaggerated due to the thinner atmosphere. The second problem is that Richard only looked at one stretch of the image. A lot more data was recorded in the high dynamic range camera than is visible in a basic 8-bit image, which is the default of when you look at the image online, something discussed more in episode 48. If you look at other stretches, it does not show that side to be saturated, but it shows it just to be brighter, not 99% plus reflective. For those of you who are at a computer, click on the link to the Themis image from the show notes, or do a web search for V03814003. On the Mars Image Explorer page that opens, you'll see the image strip and the face towards the middle, in black and white. Click the false color button, and then the S1 button. Then click the image itself, and it should expand in size. You'll clearly see that it's not completely reflective and saturated, as Richard claimed. The third problem has to do with an analysis that a man called Mark Carlotto did from the old Viking images. I'm going to discuss this in much more detail in part two, but briefly, 
Richard and other Face on Mars people pay a lot of homage to Mark Carlotto's work, referencing it often. A lot of what he did was to make 3D models of the Face Mesa based on the Viking images. He did this by looking at the different shades, assuming a certain reflectivity, and then the different shades correspond to different slopes and angles. It's just like what you learn in grade school art class for shading based on the way that things are pointed relative to a light source. He used the same technique in reverse to make a 3D model from a 50 pixel tall feature. What this means is that Mark Carlotto's work assumes a reflectivity in order to reconstruct the 3D nature of the mesa. But if Hoagland is right in this case, that the entire side of the mesa, maybe a full one-third of it, is 99 plus percent reflective, then it completely screws up everything Carlotto did, and the 3D reconstructions are wrong. You can't have it both ways. Carlotto's shape-from-shading work cannot be right if part of the mesa is 99 plus percent reflective. Or, Carlotto's work could be accurate, but then this hugely reflective stuff by Hoagland is wrong. I'm not saying Carlotto's work is accurate at this point, but Richard does, and he can't be right on both counts. He also might not be right on either count. As an added bonus, Richard reads into image compression artifacts and says that there's regular geometry in the bright 99 plus percent reflective part of the face, indicating panels of some sort constructed by an intelligent civilization. Refer back to episodes 47 and 48 on image processing for more on these kinds of artifacts, specifically later in episode 48. The next step in our multi-year journey takes us to about six to seven years ago as I'm recording this, with the Mars Express spacecraft and the HRSC, or High Resolution Stereo Camera, on board. After consistently mispronouncing the principal investigator's name as Gerard Newcomb instead of Gerhard Neukam, and I've met the guy so I know how to pronounce his name, and telling people to write to him, and posting full contact information to tell him to image the face, Richard was angry with the results of what Neukam finally did. Richard claimed conspiracy and the worst of all possible things, actual collaboration between Neukam and Michael Malin, the guy who built the Themis and other cameras on NASA missions around Mars. Richard was dismayed that they might actually collaborate on results to bring out the best features that the different cameras offer. In the end, he claimed that they purposely distorted the data because it didn't show what Richard thought it should. Though, as I just explained with the Themis data, Richard lacks an understanding of how these cameras work and what the data actually do show. This was exemplified later with high-rise images in 2010, when he again showed profound ignorance. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has the highest resolution camera ever to orbit Mars, and it's capable of taking images at roughly 0.25 meters per pixel scale, or about 15 inches per pixel, the size of a large dinner plate. The camera is called HiRISE, which stands for High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment. It imaged the face area in black and white in 2007, and in 2010, it added a color swath through the middle. The image page on the HiRISE website shows an extreme close-up as the header image, and if you click for a wallpaper image, it shows that close-up again. The face doesn't disappear. What NASA's very cleverly done is to zoom in 
to the center of that previously released picture, three-year-old picture, so that you're getting an ultra-close-up, kind of like if you were to zoom in really tight on the upper lip of the Mona Lisa. And you'd have no idea what it was. Yeah. If, if, yeah. And, and, and what they're doing is they're comparing them on the Fox story, which you sent me, which came from the Daily Mail story in London, which people have been sending me for the last couple of days. I mean, this is a very well-orchestrated disinformation campaign, so blatant, so obvious, so easily provable, that you have to say, what are these people smoking? The question is actually, Richard, how ignorant are you of how imaging works, and why did you not click any of the other links on the page? I realize that your own website hasn't been updated in format since the 1990s, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do some amount of clicking on other links on someone else's website. Apparently, Richard doesn't realize that a computer monitor has an aspect ratio of about 16 to 10, or 16 to 9, width to height, as opposed to the high-rise camera, which takes images that are up to about 1 to 10, width to height, as in... It would take something like 20 computer monitors stacked one above the other to properly display a high-rise image. I say up to because the high-rise camera, as I talked about in episode 48, is a push-broom type, meaning that it has effectively a string of pixels, and then these scan across the surface, much like a scanner or a photocopier, or a broom. The operators can choose to take an image as long as the memory can store, or they can stop it sooner. In this particular case, they stopped it sooner, as you'll see in the grayscale version. And, quite conveniently, if you look a little bit further down the page, beyond where it says wallpaper, there's a big section called Image Products. This is where you can click to download a JPEG version or JPEG 2000 version of the whole thing. You can choose grayscale or color. You can choose map projected or non-map projected. You can choose which colors were combined and mapped to which colors on the monitor. And if you do that, you'll get the full high-rise image, though it is cropped to just the areas of overlap if you choose color. What I mean by that is that the camera has these strings of pixels, but only ones in the middle record other colors besides infrared to red. So while the grayscale version shows the full face and the area around it, the colors only cover part of it. But all of them show much more detail than the close-up that Richard clearly thinks is the full image. With this high-rise image, that takes us through the majority of cameras that have imaged the infamous face. So we have a lot of images of this Mesa. We have it from many different spacecraft under many different lighting conditions at many different resolutions and in many different colors. After all, it is the most publicly requested to-be-imaged spot on the entire planet. Hoagland and his ilk have written, called, faxed, and emailed all of the mission scientists for over 15 years, demanding that they re-image the face. And each time a new craft gets there, Hoagland claims that it's this time, this time, that we'll get disclosure because the politics are right for it, and that it's this time that the images will show what they've been claiming all along. And of course they don't. And as I've now gone through in some detail, each time Hoagland claims that they've deliberately distorted the images so that you can't see a face 
because they're desperate. It's a total, flat, absolute lie, and it's an obvious indication that someone at NASA is getting increasingly desperate, that we're probably on the verge, on the eve of the, of the D-word, disclosure. Meanwhile, of course, because it's been imaged so much, Hoagland has also had the nerve to say that NASA must know something's weird about it because they seem to image it so much. That's right, folks, you just can't win. He demands new images, saying this time they'll show what he wants, and when delivered, he says that they've distorted them while at the same time saying that the fact that they've imaged it again means that they know that there's something going on there. While the government has imaged it too much for nothing to be there, according to Richard, real scientists apparently haven't done enough to argue against him. No one has done, except us in the outside independent community, any science on this. You can't, I cannot point you, and you can't find one refereed, technical, peer-reviewed, scientific paper on Sidonia blowing this away. What Richard has done here is to formally invoke the absence of evidence is evidence of absence fallacy, when it actually is absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, in absence of a scientific article in a scientific, peer-reviewed, published journal, refuting the face doesn't mean that we think the face is real. And I'm sure I'll get an email if I got that fallacy wrong, but moving on. As Richard surely knows, or if he doesn't, then he is being willfully ignorant on yet another thing in this episode after having been around this stuff for over 40 years, astronomers and geologists don't write papers about things that look like other things not being those things. And if we do, since I did write a paper on the lunar ziggurat stuff, we don't submit them to geology, geophysics, or astronomy journals. We submit them to things like the Skeptical Inquirer, or perhaps the Psychology Journal as part of a broader discussion on pareidolia or a similar phenomenon. Richard has to know that. But with that in mind, I'm going to close out Part 1's main segment with a discussion about this clip. To ask someone looking at these pictures, what does it look like? I mean, science is supposed to be objective, isn't it? Science is not what you see or what you feel. It's what you can measure. Richard Hoagland is clearly not a geologist. Geologists primarily record two different types of data, morphometry and morphology. Morphometry means the process of measuring the shape and dimensions of things. It's usually pretty objective, although I could get into cases where it's not, but that's not really important for this discussion. Morphology, on the other hand, is the study of the forms of things. In other words, how they look. My doctoral dissertation was assembling a massive database of craters on Mars. I recorded a lot of morphometry of crater positions, crater diameters, depths, and other things. But a large part of the database was also recording morphology, like how the ejecta blanket looked, whether it looked like a pancake, a flower, or a butterfly. And yes, I actually used those morphologic classes and published those names in scientific literature. That's because as soon as I say that a feature looks like a butterfly, almost everyone gets a picture in their heads of what it looks like. And that picture is going to be pretty accurate of what these specific types of craters look like. And so, Richard Hoagland is yet again using a faulty argument. Science, especially geologic science, 
records both objective measurements and subjective classifications of features. That's how it works. And so if we as scientists talk about the smiley face crater on Mars, if you're a Mars researcher, you probably know what crater I'm talking about. And I'll link to it in the show notes for those of you who don't. It looks like a smiley face. Does that mean that it is a smiley face that was carved by an intelligence wanting to make themselves known to us? No, it doesn't. But that's pareidolia mixed with some fringe ideas at work, the hallmark of a discussion about the face on Mars. There is no new news for this episode, other than apparently the world did not end on December 21st, 2012. I hope you all have figured that out. And for those of you who missed my special episode 58 about it. As for Q&A and feedback, I'm actually going to skip those for this episode because I'm already running over 10 minutes longer than I wanted to, and part two is coming out in just eight days. I will, however, talk about a puzzler for this week. This episode, with its main segment on the face on Mars, for the puzzler, I'm going to ask you to search through any image from any spacecraft to Mars to find examples of pareidolia that you think is better than the original Viking image of the face. Your pareidolia doesn't have to be of a face. It can be of, say, a kitten or a frog or a spider. But it also can't be the smiley face crater. I'll provide links to a few various image browsing sites online that you can use to help out with this and to get you started, assuming, of course, you're interested in participating in this. Send in your best example or examples to puzzler at sjrdesign.net with the image link and preferably an annotated version so that I know what you're looking at. All because it clearly looks like a dragon to you doesn't necessarily mean it's going to look like a dragon to me. I'll discuss these during the next episode and provide a gallery of some of the best to add to the discussion of The Face on Mars, Part 2. Two announcements for this episode. First, for those of you who don't read the blog, I put up a post on December 29th, 2012 about professional psychics failing to predict much of anything correctly in 2012. This may not be a surprise to most of you, but in the post I provide a 70-page PDF that lists nearly 550 predictions made and an analysis of each one. If you're interested in that sort of thing, head on up to pseudoastro.wordpress.com or I'll have a link in the show notes for this episode on the podcast website. Second, for those of you in the greater Denver, Colorado area or traveling there at the end of April 2013, the 6th Denver Skepticamp, or 10th Colorado Skepticamp, will be held on April 27th in the Castle Rock Public Library. I will most likely be there, probably talking actually this year about image processing, possibly focusing on the lunar ziggurat or on the face on Mars. That wraps up this topic on the 59th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For 
more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode, five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, although it might take me a while to get back to you. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on your portal of choice. If you liked it, tell your friends, family, and two random strangers that you've met online. 